you protect what you love. Hunting is a life, not a lifestyle, it's a life. This is Hunters to show people how great of a job we're doing for conservation, providing for ourselves all the things you and I understand. I think you kind of owe it to the animal that you're hunting to be as prepared as possible. You know, as I get older, I appreciate the laughs and the time and the experience. So, we're going to we're with Mr. Johnny Hamilton today. One, thank you for doing this. I know you you're an elk guide. You're really busy this time of year, so thank you for taking time out of your day. Um, originally, the main reason that I even thought about calling you is because of the uh, run-in that me and Troy and Jordan had with a mountain lion last spring, and you're the most knowledgeable person I know about mountain lions. But uh, before we even get on that, it's elk season, and Troy and I just got our tails kicked where me and Brad, me and Troy and Brad and Wills, we're going to talk about some elk stuff first. But um, before we started recording, you were talking about some of the the work you did with helping the collar and the collar and the calves and the cows and stuff. So if you could talk a little bit about that, it'd be uh, great. Sure. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife got a uh, grant from some of the landowners here in southeastern Colorado, and they're doing a predator study with bears and lions trying to figure out calf mortality within this elk herd down here in southern Colorado. Right. So they've collared a few cows, and they're implanting a few cows to find out when they drop those calves, and then they're going in and putting GPS collars on these calves that if a calf dies, it will send an immediate mortality signal out. Yeah. And then we can walk into that calf within a very short period of it sending that signal out and hopefully identify whether it was a bear, a lion, a coyote, or an unknown cause. I mean, sometimes the cow's just not producing enough milk, and the little calf may die of natural causes, starvation, whatever. Right. But, um, you know, the big deal is we're just trying to figure out throughout the state what is keeping our cow-calf numbers where they're at. Some areas should be increasing, and we're not seeing an increase. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out the correlation between mountain lion, bear, coyote, predators on the, the cow, yeah. uh, calf population. Yeah. Well, how, how do you feel that this year's drought has affected that as far as the, the production of calf out? You know, I've got my biology degree. That's what I did my graduate studies in was biology. So every year you've got to look at your overall environment, whether right. you had a lot of rain, whether you had a good winter snow, whether you had something that could have killed it. This past year, we probably had one of the dry seasons I've ever seen with snow. And then we came into our spring months, you know, March, April, May, had no rain. Uh, so we grew very little cover for these little calves and deer yeah. fawns to be able to hide in. So when we were collaring calves this specific spring, there was a, you know, a higher number of mortalities due to barren lines for the simple reason there was, uh, you know, no cover out there to really hide those little calves. Right. So they were just easy to easy targets. They were much. easy targets. I mean, you know, they they lay out there, they hide the mom and nurses them, and then she walks off and leaves them until they get a little older. You know, even for us collaring, we always say we've got about a 48-hour window is the easiest because they really won't run from you within that first 48, 72 hours of being born. You can yeah. sneak in, we weigh them, we sex them, we put a collar on them, and then we know, uh, you know, the condition of that little calf when he was born mm -hmm. when they put the collar on. Right. How many, do you determine, like, how many you're going to collar 
in an area? Is there? How do y'all determine how many you know, you're going to do? They've had 50 GPS callers, roughly. So as soon as we lose a mortality, CPW's been trying to recaller a calf. Yeah. So they've tried to keep at least close to 50 little calves collared. And as we lose calves, they try to recapture right. another calf. Yeah. Now, how are y'all? How are y'all catching the cow elk the year before? Because Bob Holder was telling me he came down to the to the Purgatory Ranch. They was telling me how that works with the implant that's something, some little device that's put in the vulva of a cow, and when she has a calf, it drops that and sends a signal to you guys, and y'all come in and catch that calf, and that's when you put the collar on. So how are y'all catching the cows? Uh, a lot of times they're using helicopters. I haven't been in on that part no. of it, uh, but usually helicopters starting them, yeah. and then they, they uh, you know, implant that little control that mm-hmm. will send a signal out and it'll come through as they're giving birth to that calf that tells them, hey, that one just dropped a calf, yeah. gives kind of a location that you can walk into. Now, a lot of it, I run a commercial spray business, spray from some of these ranches, and so we're out there on spray rigs, and so we help the biologist as we find those calves, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, surprising, those cows, a lot of times they, they calve right out in those big grassy meadows yeah. when the good grass is there, and... We might be on spray rigs at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and see a cow walk out of the trees, nurse a calf, walks back out, and the calf lays down. Right. So when we saw him lay down, we'd call one of the wildlife techs and say, hey, we just witnessed there's a little calf laying here. And then we'd go in there, and they'd collar him even in the middle of the day. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting to see the collar because Bob, he came because of a, a mortality signal, and he came over to the ranch and asked Mike's permission to go and look, and he went and found it and found the, the collar. It was laying by a fence where the calf went under the fence and must have got hung and it fell off, which he was glad to see it wasn't mortality. It's just that it fell off. And he was showing us how that thing works and how it expands and how it fits on them. And the, the data that they're getting from that is absolutely incredible. It's Can you imagine if you'd have had that 30 years ago, it, that oh, kind of information, what, what the elk herds would be like right now and what you would know about them? Right. How, how long have they been doing that now, the collar and deal? Th- this study's going on its third year. Okay. And uh, yeah. so we're just trying to see where our calf percentages, survival rates are staying. Um, you know, they've kind of had a base estimate because they do aerial surveys mm-hmm. throughout the state and they have grids they fly and try to figure out survival rates just out of the air doing aerial surveys. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then this year, they or three years ago, they started this calf study. They've got one north of here up by Canyon City actually on mule deer, uh, kind of along the same lines. And uh, we're actually collaring mountain lines up there, mm. putting collars on them and uh, following territories of those lines. And then here in a few years, they're going to see the amount of lines we collar to the deer and try to put a correlation on that study because they are working closely on yeah. collared lines up in that deer study area. Right. You know, the amazing thing, Lake, that it, that he commented on a minute ago that all this study is being done by grants yeah. from landowners. Yeah. That, that's pretty incredible. you right. got personal, private landowners that are forking up the money to say, hey, we want to do the right thing on our place. And then that neighbor does it, then this neighbor, before you know it, everybody's involved. And other than that, where else would you get the money from? Try getting yeah. that from the government and, and see how that works. And that's the tough thing. You know, the government, you know, they're strapped as it is. Yeah. They're not going right. to fund that kind of study. And right. you find the right landowners, and they're willing to go, 
you know, if they're really conservationists, and most of these big landowners, when you get to know them, nearly all of them are true conservationists. Right. And they know that there's a relationship between hunting and managing these elk and deer and predator populations to keep everything in check. So it'll be good data for those ranchers to yeah. get to look at when it's all said and done. Well, that's, I mean, look where we just came from at, at Mr. Mike's place mm -hmm. in Purgatory Peak. I mean, he's making all that habitat, making parks and meadows that's, you know, all that growth, more food for the elk and um, and all that. But on that topic, slightly slightly changed. So you know, Mr. Mike's place it, it's incredible for elk. Much like the, you know, the place that you that you got on, right, not far from there. You know how the elk are there. Um, from what you know, the week that we spent there, it was just like terribly slow as far as elk activity. You know, it was just it was like I felt like we were hunting like they weren't they were maybe starting to kind of think about the rut you know but they weren't full into that yet do you and we were wondering um you know like is that behind is that later than normal what, what are your thoughts on that from what you've seen and being from colorado have yeah. you noticed that in the last 10 years have you noticed the rut move back just a little bit each year you know i think it changes from year to year mm -hmm. I, i've got it up here for nearly 30 years now and um a lot of that can be weather related yeah. whether we're having a wet fall cool it starts cycling those cows a little earlier this fall really from september and here we are september 15th i mean we're we're having some 80 to mid 90 degree temps and yeah. even at high elevations i mean mm -hmm. the nights might be down into the upper 30s at 10,000 feet but you've got days hitting in the 80s right. and these cows just aren't cycling yet to really fire the bulls off and get the rut going. Right. I think we're getting close. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been rifle seasons where I've seen first rifle season, which is mid-October, where we've got pretty good ruts going that late. Now, yeah. a lot of that can be second cycle cows that mm -hmm. didn't get bred on the first one. Right. But we're definitely later on our normal yeah. rut right now than I've seen in several years. So you thinking that probably has a lot to do with the drought and the dry summer and the heat? I think the heat right now as much as a anything. A big factor. A big factor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just unbelievable. These bulls, you know, They've got to chase these cows around, and the cows have to be at the right temps in the daylight, and that has a big effect on shortness of the days. Even the biologists yeah. will tell you will start triggering mm -hmm. these cows, and you know the days are getting shorter, but these heats, it still feels it's like a July day. And you know it's funny because we were talking the other day. We were all sitting up there on the mountain. We were trying to. You always try to figure it out, and you think there's a problem or there's a solution, and then all of a sudden we start looking through the phone and looking at pictures from days past, from years past, of hunting on mm -hmm. Mike's ranch. Mm -hmm. And all the elk were killed between the 20th and the 25th. And then you you have to sit back and say to yourself, well, we're just a little early. The elk are probably a little bit, they're still on time. They may be a little slow because of the conditions, but we're just a little early. Yeah. And and you hear people talking about it's later and later and later. And I have noticed that on the ranch where we're fixing to go to in New Mexico. I've noticed it there get later and later in the last few years, especially in the gun season. Our gun season's always been better at calling in bulls than it has been during bow season, to be honest with you. That's, that's what, the uh, first week of October. Yeah, Troy right. and I had to stop. We stopped at the uh, New Mexico Department. Uh, was it the DNR? DNR they call it, yeah, New Mexico Tone, DNR yeah. uh, on the way up here and went ahead and got all our you know licenses and stuff squared away so we wouldn't have to do that when we were heading back. And we were talking to one of the officers there. He said the same thing. He said that first week of rifle season, 
is a uh, or, or muzzleloader, whichever he said. But he said that's always the most wide open rut here lately. Right. That's crazy to me. Well, in New Mexico, they do start usually October one. Right. Now, one thing Colorado has done for years, and a lot of people don't realize it. You know, I always say the rut really gets going somewhere around September eighteenth, mm-hmm. and. If you notice the regs of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and I will commend them on it, they always end the general archery season. This year will end on September 23rd. 23rd. Our first rifle will not start till October the 14th or 15th. They always say that peak of the rut is actually when they don't have a season because they want as many cows getting bred without right. hunter harassment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they've known for a while that the peak should be somewhere in that 24th to October mm-hmm. 7th. So they give those elk about a two- to three-week break without general harassment right. uh, throughout the state. And it's paid off. Yeah. And it has those paid are, Which off. is, again, like you're talking about, if you're a conservationist, like you were talking about, we're fine with that. You know, that, that makes sense. Um, as far as just, like, hunting tactics go, so you've been fairly successful guiding so far. What have, what have you been doing? What What's your main like, – like, what have you been trying to do to get yourself in front of bulls when they're acting like this, not bugling and not doing rut stuff yet? What, what have you been doing? You know, most of it – and I tell everybody, find your feed source, and it can change from year to year. Like this year, there's an abundance of acorns. And early in the year, mm-hmm. uh, the bulls were really in there, even in bachelor groups, first of September. Find those feed sources, hunt around there, hunt around water. Uh, because when it's 80, 90 degrees, sooner or later, those elk are going to hit those mm-hmm. water holes. So it, it's nearly either sitting on a water hole or you're doing a lot of spotting and stalking. to get within range of those elk but you know i tell everybody you need to know the food source and that food source can vary every year where those elk may be Mm -hmm. Uh, this year the oaks all the different varieties of oaks we have here in southern colorado we didn't have any late freezes so we made a lot of uh, acorns for all the wildlife and they've definitely been in them hard we've seen that in new mexico on on the ranch we hunt there when when the acorn crops in full bloom, it's happening. It's amazing what it does to those elk, yeah. and and it's amazing what the body weights are on those elk as well, especially going in the late winter. That that food source, and you wouldn't think that an acorn would make a big deal to an, to an elk being such a big animal. They literally gorge themselves mm-hmm. on them things, and they don't leave it. They'll well, bed down right there and just. And to that to the point too, um, you know, there's a place that we hunt at Mike's um, the basin, and years past that's been one of our favorite spots to go and this year we went up there we went up there twice tried it two different times this year into the basin very i mean there was the elk sign wasn't the same as it used to be there was just the numbers weren't there and then it was you the one that said it you were like the food's not here Mm -mm, like it usually is the The grass that's there there, i honestly believe it's last year's grass and you didn't have a winter to kill it off and it's just it's just sitting there. I grabbed some of it yesterday. I don't know if you saw when we were sitting there when we climbed there. Yes, I was sitting there chewing on that stuff. It's about as bitter as you could ever want. It's just nasty and tough. And you look around and you think, there's got to be another food source somewhere. There's been elk in there, but they're not staying. They, they're coming through and they're going somewhere else. And usually when you walk in that basin, it smells like a feedlot. Yeah, there's so many elk so living many elk, in there. Yeah. They're not there. Right. Well, and this year it was just so dry. And, and that basin you're talking is above timberline. 
And, right. you know, that's a very short growth season. You know, mm -hmm. it's freezing up there even into early June, and it's already freezing up there probably right that's now. Right. And we didn't get the rains. I mean, I have been above Timberline there in September, and the wildflowers are blooming. Mm -hmm. The grass is all fresh, and yeah. you get a ton of elk up there. This year we didn't have the rain source to grow that kind of green right. grass yeah. to, to get the elk, and I think the elk are – or down more in the trees where you had some shade and the grass is a little better and and it makes it harder hunting when they're in those big pines where that green grass is actually tender and if they're not calling they're hard to find and yeah. kill so mix that yeah mix that with not in the easy to huntable food source in with not really rutting that hard just does not make for the easiest no hunting. it doesn't and then hunting. tie in two extra guys camera equipment tripods yeah and all that stuff trying to kill an elk on video it's it's next to almost nearly impossible it is yeah it literally was impossible this week we didn't kill one <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we tried we tried one more time this morning and i will say i told we were, we were walking and i was talking to brad i said four more days and i think it'll be yeah right because but one little bit of a weather change i yeah. believe if y'all was to get just a little front and get a little bit of rain and a little cooler weather it'll snap it and i really well, do that too. we heard more bugling this morning than we had the entire week we were there and they weren't blowing the doors off of it but you got we were like bugle deprived all week we didn't see the first bull till day four it was. And, and it we was walked tough. up on him just rubbing a tree. Got lucky, and it's like there he is right there. And it wasn't from lack of effort right. either. We were putting some miles and some time in, and it just like you know, Brad said it. You know, y'all been doing it long enough. When when it ain't happening, it ain't happening. You can't make them be in rut. No, and you no. can't you can't push it to happen either. It's just it is what it is. Yeah. Well, last last week for the first time, I killed a seven by seven out east of here. Yeah. And uh, he had not rubbed all his velvet off. He was still working on velvet, and Gosh. they should have been out of that in August. Have really? You, have you noticed in elk like whitetails, Lake and I were talking about that on the way here, when when they're all in bachelor groups in summertime and they all got velvet, but when they start shedding that velvet, do they turn into a different critter? They, they do, and and the, the mule deer bucks will too. I mean, they, they really start transitioning areas. Mm -hmm. When they're growing their antlers, whether it's elk or muley bucks, all the nerve endings and the blood that's going up through there, they kind of stay in areas where they're not going to get beat up. They're not going to get those horns knocked around on trees or on on a thick, thick brush that they've got to go through. You'll right. see them a lot of times in open areas. It's funny you say that. You see pictures sometimes of elk in the, in the middle of the summertime when they're growing their antlers laying out in the middle of a pasture. And you think, why is he laying out in that hot pasture? Yeah. And that's why. That's exactly why. And and another reason you'll see a lot of those bulls even go above timberline is they try to get up above a lot of your insects uh, that are bugging them. Really? You know, they'll go higher huh. where some of, some of the insects won't be yeah. quite as bad mm -hmm. up there. Yeah. I know I've seen pictures of moose in Alaska when they're growing their horns, and you'll just see just gobs of mosquitoes sitting on there just feeding on that blood because it's such a huge blood source right. when that velvet's coming. Right. That makes perfect sense, and it makes perfect sense what we were talking about too is yeah. that, that deal. I've seen it happen in Montana. Um, whitetail hunting, sitting there three or four days before the season and watch six or seven bucks coming out into an alfalfa field. And when they start shedding that velvet, you lose a buck a day. And they start going into a different area. And then you got to go back and find that deer you wanted to hunt because he's probably not there or he's running those other deer off. Yeah. It's amazing how fast that happens in a one to two day period. It really right. is. And the elk are the same way. Sure. And when they're in that transition zone between the time they go hard horn and they're chasing cows or the muley bucks go hard horn and they're waiting until November. Right. That's some of the hardest times to hunt either one of them. They're traveling. They they turn more nocturnal. They're not having to be out there. 
because they're not in the mood to really go look for their girls. So they've only got two things on their mind, and that's sleeping and eating and waiting until the right time to to start chasing. Well, see, it's funny you would say that because um, when we got there, you know, Brad was telling me, he said, he said, man, he said, there's some incredible mule deer bucks that we've been seeing. And I, I saw the first day, one of the first afternoons, me and Brad went and sat on a wildlife. And when we were leaving, we saw a really good mule deer buck still in velvet. And um, then it was like the next day or two or something, we'd stop seeing, you know, because we were seeing mule deer everywhere, bucks. We were seeing them all over the place. And then we just kind of stopped seeing them. We didn't know what the deal was. And I think it was yesterday afternoon, turned the corner, and there was one standing there who was horned. And Brad, and Brad was like, wonder if they've been shedding their velvet because they were everywhere and then gone yeah it's how they roll it's, it's yeah. that time of the year for them it's time to to do what they do and one of their main yeah. sources is to reproduce that's what they're here for and for them to do that they've got to pick their spots find their harem and do what they do and as a hunter when you're trying to hunt them like you said in between that transition zone it's tough because you don't know where they're going to be yeah. you may get a picture of them here or see them here today and tomorrow he's two miles over here going to where he's used to being his home range in the wintertime. Right. It's been tough. It's been real tough. And elk can really travel. People yeah. do not realize, you know, this time of year there's new bulls that are showing up every day, mm-hmm. and they may travel miles over one night. One of the bulls I got lucky to get a hunter on last week, I had actually saw him about three miles, and he was real easy to identify. He had over two-foot thirds. Well, there's not mm. that many thirds wow. with – one of them was 27 inches, one was 24 with a three-inch kicker. So literally you had 27 inches of yeah. horns on two-thirds. Well, there's not that many bulls. Well, I saw him in one canyon one week. In fact, the week Cameron Haynes was hunting with me. Right. We saw the bull, and uh, another week later, he was several miles in another canyon. Three miles apart. At least. Wow. They know yeah. all the shortcuts. That's they why. knew the shortcuts across That's the ridges, exactly right. and he showed up on some cows. That's crazy. And this week was the first week, actually just two days ago, was the first week I saw a bull with a broken bean, which mm-hmm. tells me they're just now starting yeah. to get into a fight or two. Yeah, that's because we, we were saying the same thing. It was like little by little. And like I said, this morning was the most bugling we've heard. And they still, like I said, we were just overly excited because we'd been so not hearing bugles all week. They still were not, you know, it was like they bugle some in the morning and then like once it hit a certain time, they were done. You know, they were – laying in their beds, doing their thing, not not at all fired up yet, but getting there. You can actually see it starting. And this, to, and this starting. one bull was consistently coming to Awala. I mean, he was there every morning and every evening, but you couldn't get to him because of the wind. Right. You just had to back away and just hope for a wind change. And if you look at the 10-day forecast, there is none. Right. It's going to be this way for the next 10 days. Yeah. Right. And he had – there was a – Mike had a proof camera hung up there, and he mm-hmm. had like what was it? He had thirds, or or what, what was it? He had like a three foot long tire. Oh, he's got one. He's got one third on his right side. It's got to be three feet. Wow. And then on his it's left side, looking, his yeah. fifth, his fourth goes straight down. So it makes his whale tail look huge, but it's just a point going straight down. Looks like a drop tine. It's a pretty right. cool bull. Well, we wanted very badly to intercept him. It just didn't work out. Right. <laughs> well, and y'all brought probably the biggest still up elk hunting. People are always asking, Johnny, you've hunted. 30 years doing this and watched the one deal and I said wind yeah yeah I, I said that is one of the hardest things you better keep a wind bottle with you and I don't care what cover scent you have on if the wind's not right they're going to get you yeah. especially especially when you're dealing with a whole herd if you're dealing with one elk you can maneuver and try to work yourself in there but when you're dealing with 30 40 elk 
good luck. Exactly. Yeah. You're not going to beat their nose. It's not yeah. happening. Speaking like – so, two mornings ago, the closest we got – so, we get on – we were on the edge of uh, one of those parks, Wilbur Bugles, Bull Answers. We're excited because we had a Bull Answer. So, we set up real quick, and it just – he got to about – we couldn't see him because he was through some – the, the park kind of curved and had like a little finger of timber jutting out and you could hear him. He's probably about 80 yards through there. And he came, 80 yards about as close he got and then he said, the heck with this, I'm going up. And he kept going up the mountain. So the next morning we tried that again, ended up seeing the bull. Wilbur's back there calling. And, uh, you know, he was like, again, not all that fired up, but actually responding a little bit. And Brad could see him. I couldn't see him. There were too many trees. And Brad said, he's thinking about it. But, he you know, he's not that fired up, but he's thinking about it. He said, he's turned our way. He said, he's kind of edging this way a little bit. Just started edging his way, and you feel that, felt that wind hit me in the back of the head. And they know. They know when that wind changes, too. And, and actually, that I felt like that morning when we were there, that bull stayed down there a little longer than he really wanted to. He, You and I both know when, how the thermals change and how you watch them. They, they, they read it, especially them lead cows. When you're looking at a herd, you watch a lead cow just stand there and, constantly checking it when and when it changes boom they go up the hill yeah and that's what he was doing and then it caught him perfect that wind yeah, that wind hit him and he said i'm not going over there and we, you know, and we tried him again yesterday afternoon and he actually was bugling coming down but he didn't come down too really late yeah it was too late and that's kind of what's going on right now is uh, a lot of these bulls the last two three days they'll get about 80 to 100 yards but people don't realize you know if you're really good with the cow call you can get their attention and come but they have you pegged, mm-hmm. and if they don't see that cow, mm-hmm. they're holding up. They're not quite ready to just run over you yeah. without thinking. I called several bulls the last two days and got them right there to that 80 to 100 yards, mm-hmm. and you'd see them. And you, then you kind of start playing a cat and mouse game. Okay, I'm not going to call. Maybe he knows kind of where I'm at, and he's going to come on down on his own. Right. And that's where you you can occasionally trick those single bulls with the Montana decoy or something, but that's where they're at right now. Yeah. They're just not wanting to run you over yeah. and get into that 20 to 40 yard range. Not enough testosterone. Boy. I've always, yeah. I've always had this little saying I've had for years and it's, it's, they live there 365 days a year. We're just visiting, but you think about go home tonight when you get home this afternoon and let's say your wife's in the back of the house and she hollers at you and you say, she hollers, Johnny, and you say, what? And she says, come here. Well, you know where she's at. You don't even have to go through either room in the house. You know what room she's in. And if you walk in that room and she ain't there, you're like, what's going on? Something's not right here. Or you go out hunting for three or four days and come home and all your stuff changed and your wife decided to move the furniture in the living room. The first thing you notice is, where's my couch? Why is this moved? And so many people take for granted how keen they really are because of what what they're doing and the only time that they're really vulnerable is when they're forgetting about all that stuff which is that peak of the rut to me it's 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 like you said it's a cat and mouse game and when you get into it it's almost what should i do what should i shouldn't do what 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 scenarios are the best and to me the only way to really learn about how to make yourself a better hunter is to just get out there and and beat yourself up on trial and error you're not going to kill them all no like I said, I feel like what we did this week, given the conditions, were our best options, but it still didn't work out as far as killing a bull. But, no. I mean, it, it happens. No, and, and we're we're tracking so much stuff in there, too. Yeah. You know, without a shadow of a doubt, that bull this morning, looking at the trail cam pictures of him in the last three consecutive days, I would have 
I would probably bet if you could get up there a little bit earlier and catch that wind right, and, and it, it's in a it's in a place where you could see him coming, and you just get up there and make your time and then your move right and get up there with him at the same time. I believe you can kill him, but doing it the way we're doing it with cameras and all that stuff, yeah, it's, it's just it's next to impossible. Tough, and you've right. been a part of that with us with the cameras. You've seen how that goes. Yeah, it could be. It could be hectic. And then on top of that, we had the Motor City Madman with us on Cortez. Oh, Legion. yeah, that's Holy right. Smoked. Yeah, you were there when the oh, yeah. hunt. Uh, Trying to calm him down. And he's, you know, he's, every bull we looked at, Johnny was like, well, that's not very big. And Ted's like, not big? That's the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life, you know? All I remember is uh, when we pulled up there, Jimmy and I, Ted had said something. He said something. He said it was, it said it was like a, house, a SWAT team house clear. And I said, "Oh Lord, how many times did he shoot?" <laughs> <laughs> I watched that footage. Boom, boom. God, Ted, Ted's a man. He, he's he's got the same mentality in Jimmy as if that has if uh, if you got bullets and they still stand and keep shooting. You know, and I guess I'm that way. Even as a guy, they are big animals, and I have seen some perfectly placed bow shots and rifle shots both. And I tell everybody, I said, if they're still on their feet put one more in them. Mm -hmm. Especially uh -huh. during the rut. When when they got that adrenaline growing, going and they're 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 wired and fired, it, it, it I've seen them, you know, and I know you have too and I know Lake has too. You shoot them with a bow and they go ten yards and fall over dead or you shoot them with a rifle or a bow and a perfect and them jokers are run for three miles. Yep. You never know. Never about, know. You showed us a picture when we came in here and, and, and I was just about to I figured subjects. you were and, and you were the first person we thought of this past spring when we had this incident happen yeah. with this mountain lion. And, and yeah, let me let me paint this picture real yeah. quick because you were asking the story. Here's what happened: we were turkey hunting in New Mexico, and we had you know we we decided and there's a cabin we can stand down there, but if we stay in a cabin in the morning. It's an hour drive, and so we were like, let's get to the top, let's put some tents up, let's camp. We'll wake up and just be we'll be there. There won't be that hour drive. We'll be in there. So we We've had talked about it for years, but we can't get Wilbur or Brad to stay in the tent. Yeah, that's oh, true. Okay. Not enough. Yeah, so they're scared. I guess I don't know. But <laughs> but um, well, yeah, I am too. After that, but um, so we had set up camp. We'd actually just took a nap because we drove like through the night. We'd take a nap and we get up. We're about to go hunting again. I'm standing there talking to Jordan and uh, Keith, a friend of mine who went with us on that trip. Troll was getting his camera stuff ready. And I'm talking, and I'm looking down. Uh, you could see that, that road where in the video I sent you. Um, I see something moving through the trees, and I could tell it was big. And I was about to say, here comes the elk, because that's just what I assumed it was. But then right before I said that, I said, here come. And he went through a gap, and I could see that big curled up tail. And I'm from Mississippi. I've never seen a mountain lion before. I know they're out there, you know. I, but I said, oh, my gosh, that's a mountain lion. And they thought I was playing with them. And I just start pointing. Finally, they spin around. Luckily, both Troy and Keith had a little handy cam, just happened to have them spin around, and they filmed it across the road. And like I said, don't know what I'm looking at. I know he looked big. So I took you know, I took the video, I sent it to you, and when you said that was a big cat, I was like, okay, he must be a big cat because you know what you're looking at. So, you know, I want to know, again, yeah, tell you that, that picture you showed me right before we start recording. Could you tell that story about trapping that line or finding that line? Well, you, you never know. I've caught, I've hunted lines now for 30 years. Yeah. And I started in West Texas hunting the dirt, riding mules and catching lines out in the Davis Mountains and Rosius Mountains, Shinati Mountains of West Texas. And I've lived here in Colorado now 18 years, but I had a real good friend, uh, Rob Pedretti. He's gone now, but we, we probably have caught, between the two of us together, we're somewhere in that four to 500 lines we've treed or bayed with our hounds. Holy smokes. 
And um, this particular line I showed you a picture of, we were out east of Trinidad, and we knew he was a big tom. We put our dogs on him, and you never know if you're going to trail these lines a quarter of a mile or several miles before you ever catch up to where they're actually at. And right. This line took us on probably close to a three- or four-mile trail job that day with the dogs working, and Jay Waring was with me, and he took us into a creek that had a bunch of willows, and uh, we could tell just the way he was moving. He was actually hunting. You know, he was working ridges, and then he'd yeah. drop down through the willows, and, you know, they hunt a lot like a person. I tell everybody you ever follow a line, they they know how to get up there, look down into places where deer or elk ought to be, and then they'll work back down through certain areas. And he led us into the first whitetail buck that was probably a 150 class 10 point that he had yeah. probably killed because he actually stopped there and had chewed on rib and leg bones. And the only reason I say he probably killed it's because he walked right into it and he actually sat down and laid down there. You could see where he chewed on the bones where the dogs trailed through there. Right. And we may have went another half mile, mile up this little willow draw canyon that holds a lot of whitetail bucks there. And he led us to another whitetail buck. And these were all fairly fresh kills. You know, he had eaten the majority of the meat off of them, but they were still enough there. It had his attention to go back and chew on the bones and right. try to get what meat was there. And then he kind of crossed out of that canyon and went across a big Malpai volcanic ridge. And uh, we trailed him probably another two miles down in there. And he had literally freshly killed. He had just barely started eating on the hindquarters of a, you know, high 170-type mule deer buck. And uh, we ended up catching him there in a big volcanic rock pile is where we actually bait him up with the dogs. But he was a really big line, yeah. really big line. But that just shows you how, you know, they can hunt and how well they can kill these animals. Yeah. But you know, what that you know what that sounds like to me? It reminds me of a Bible verse, 1 Peter 5 and 7, where a roaring lion prowls around looking for something to devour. And we all know, and you was telling me earlier before we got started, that he y'all caught this lion in like January or February, which is after the rut. Mm -hmm. The bucks were tired. They wore out. Some of them may have been injured from fighting. So he's, he's not putting out any extra energy, but he's hunting smart. He's hunting when they're vulnerable. And to see three big mature bucks like that killed by that one lion, that's to me that's just incredible as a as a predator and as a hunter. I wish because I, I the people that want, aren't listening to this obviously they can't see the picture. This picture that Johnny has, you can see the two heads of those whitetails that have been you know dead for a little bit, and then you see that freshly killed mule deer, and then the lion. That's just crazy to me. And so well, what do you? So I mean, you're what are you looking for? I mean, your dogs are just following scent, obviously. But what? I mean, what do you? Are you find you find a track and you just go off that, or what? You know, I we hunt them several different ways. I mean, I've got dogs that they can trail the dirt as well as the snow. So if we're dirt hunting, a lot of times we're just either walking these canyons where these cats will be, or we'll ride horses if you know we ride horse or mule. Now, if we have snow, which makes it a lot easier. We can drive all these different roads on these ranches, and and I keep a tape measure with me. You know, I've hunted them long enough. I'll measure the width of their pad, and then if they're just in a walking stride, you can actually measure the length of the stride, and you'll know if that's a big adult female or if it's a tom. And the wider the pad and the longer the stride, the bigger the tom. So, you know, I've caught enough of them. I can pretty well tell you oh, yeah. this guy's going to be a really big one or not. Now, getting back, you brought up, you know, whether it was sick or injured. 
some of these, you always hear these stories that, well, they always kill the old or they kill the young. But what happens here a lot in January, February, these bucks in their prime really are healthy bucks. They may be worn down. They may have lost some body mm -hmm. conditioning, but they're solitary. They go out, they hang out. They're just trying to recover from the rut. May right. not have been injured at right. all, but when they're by themselves, it's just like they're we talked vulnerable. about they're sneaking vulnerable. in on a bull with the group of cows. Makes it a whole lot more mm -hmm. eyes. You've got more noses. You've right. got more eyes. Well, these lines are the same way. They find those big solitary bucks, which may be a healthy buck right in his prime. You know, that mule deer buck and those whitetail bucks, they were probably five-year-old, six-year-old bucks right in their prime. Right in their prime, yeah. And, you know, he just caught them in a place where he could ambush them because they were easy to kill because they were there. The whole herd. Just he all just by no, he just needs one. Mm -hmm. And when he finds one like that, all he's got to do is out trick that one animal. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I mean, because it's, I mean, it's one, like you said, I mean, uh, uh, bull elk do the same thing after the rut. They go find solitude, get off by themselves. It's an easy target. Yep, sure. You know, I've, I've, been, I've been in the hunting industry doing television video when we did it for – little over 30 years and and i've been in this part i've been all over the united states and i have never seen a mountain lion until this past turkey season here when we we're in new mexico it's the first one i ever put my eyes on now i know that plenty of them saw me without a shadow of a doubt but i've never seen one that's the first one and for that mountain lion to just walk up on us i don't think he knew we were there until we stopped him in the road mm -hmm. um and knowing where he was traveling that's that's that is a huge travel route for elk the way he was going they come up out of a canyon pass a water hole and and we started paying attention because that was our first day there, and we started yeah. paying attention, and there were just tracks all over that ranch. And what happened on that ranch about eight years ago, nine years ago, we had a big fire, and now the oak brush is as high as the ceiling, and we've got more mule deer. They've been trapping coyotes on that ranch. We've got more turkeys. We've got it, it, the— There's more everything. They're doing everything right as far as that part goes. And the amount of lions that are down now, I bet, I, I bet that one is one of probably maybe— six or eight and that's the question i wanted to ask you when you get that many lines what can what do they tolerate as far as each other being you know th th their range as far as okay here's a big male how many other lines is he going to let hang out at his house versus how many he wants out of there you know we've done some studies i actually helped with the study in texas they've got one now going on here and these big toms along with females they all have territories mm -hmm. And a big tom might have a territory where he may come through and have five to eight females within his territory. There will be some overlapping of toms within each other's territories. Um, and then I tell everybody, you know, every year you'll have just some giant tom just show up. You know, when, when you're out as much as I am, they leave scrapes. They mark their territories where the females know where they're at and the toms know where they're at and they... They leave a scrape, kind of like a deer scrape yeah. for guys that have mm -hmm. hunted whitetail. Well, these lines will leave marking scrapes. And, um, you know, when these toms meet, uh, I know it was really a unique deal just a few years ago. There was a line that showed up dead there on the Bosque del Oso, which yeah. was a state yeah. wildlife area. Yeah. Well, I wasn't aware of it. Bob Holder told me, he said, yeah, he said, we had a cow that had got run over something and he dumped the carcass. It wasn't edible. And a lot of times the division tries to get rid of the meat. That mm -hmm. elk wasn't actually edible. 
Well, Mike Powell actually found the line. It was dead. It was right there at their gate where it goes from the Bosque Inn. And right. he called Bob. He said, uh, Bob, he said, you realize there's a dead line here on this elk? And Bob's like, no. He goes, I'll be down there. And this line, Bob examines it, comes up and does. Well, it had canine punctures where another line had caught this line on that elk kill and killed it. Well, what I'm getting to about a week later, and Bob's telling me this, I call Bob because we have to seal all the lines we catch. Right. Well, I caught like a 170, 80-pound line. As the crow flies would have been probably 8 to 10 miles from where this line had got killed. We killed it back here toward Trinidad up in a canyon. He had a fresh broke canine tooth. You're kidding. And, uh, and it matched up. Yeah. that's Bob's like, I got to go back. He said, I've got a gut feeling this big Tom because the line that got killed was a young, immature male. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the big Tom came in on him on that kill and killed him. You're kidding. Uh, that's crazy. So those things happen. I mean, Jay and I, there was a line out uh, east, or Kim one year. We came in on a fresh mule deer kill, and here laid these three little 50-, 60-pound sub-adult kittens that this big tom that we were trailing had killed. Well, it was probably the female that had killed this mule deer doe, and she had her young ones up there, and this big tom came in and killed all three of those young ones. The female wasn't there, whether it got away or whatever, but he killed all three of her young ones. So, you know, there is some mortality among those cats like that. Uh, Now, for the first time, two winters ago, I was on a ranch that joins Mike's. Okay. And uh, we'd killed a big tom. We had a lot of snow in the high country two years ago. And I think we were getting some of these big toms that were having to come off the high country there in the Sangres, Mm -hmm. and they were falling out of the deep snow. So now we're getting toms overlapping into each other's territories because we had literally just killed a big tom. Two days later, I go up, and this other big tom is nearly right on this other one's track, and it had killed a deer. So I go over. Sure enough, the tom went right by the deer kill that I'd killed this big tom off two days later, and I had just enough snow. I lost its track, and I was trying to figure it out. Walked all the way through, stayed on snow. It had killed a female line. First time I've ever seen that, ever, and I've hunted them a long time. Yeah. This Tom had actually killed an adult female, had eaten half of her and had her covered up. I think he probably came out of the snow, he was hungry, mm-hmm. and she just happened yeah. to be at the wrong place. That's what I was going to ask because I wouldn't imagine that would be pretty normal that, behavior. That's not normal for cannibalism. I mean, I will see those big Toms kill young you know, kittens or sub-adults, mm-hmm. but this was actually an adult female line yeah. that he had ate half of her. Yeah. And I just think it was one of those winters where he just hadn't caught a deer yet. And, he just, yeah. and she just, of the fittest. exactly. Yeah. She just happened to come into him and he wasn't in a good mood and was probably in a new territory. It was a female line that he wasn't used to and uh, wow. killed her. So, like the other lines, like the dead, the, the, dead uh, the male and the three, the young ones that you found the that had gotten killed had. The line eat and tried to eat those, or he no, just killed them? he had just killed so them. So the, okay. Just found them right there on the kill, and he yeah. just killed them. But this one, the female, he ate her. He ate half of her and had her covered up. So completely different motive. Completely different motive. I mean, he ate on her a, for on survival. A, on a hard winter. 
on yeah. a hard winter. Yeah, the other ones were territorial yep. based. Territorial this based, and to bring that female back in, they're a lot like African lions. You know, when a big, you know, male African lion comes in and takes a pride over, he will usually kill every, every one, one of, of those offspring. And that's why I was asking you that because I learned that in Africa. They were telling yeah. me about that. We were, and we actually watched it one day, and I was like. It's kind of sad to see it happen, but it is what it is. It's Mother Nature. You can't change that. And it's just the way we spread the genetic diversity within those gene pools, you know. And that's probably all that was. He came in there, whether he knew those were not his kittens, who knows. But he killed all three of them, and it will make that female cycle again. Yeah. Is that fairly normal for, like, pretty much a a Tom? Is he going to be territorial? Like, are they all pretty much going to be like that? The majority of them are. Now, there has been enough studies, and I think there's some of these big old toms, whether they're getting bumped off their territories, or I really think I've killed some of these 170, 190-pound toms that are just giants. I think they're big enough. They don't have to have a territory. They just roam. They're going to roam, and they're going to breed whatever females they come on, and if you cross them, they probably are going to kill you. Yeah. Uh, As far as another Right. Male line. It's right. like hunting with Jimmy. <laughs> right. But, it's uh, a little generous. <laughs> but, you know, as a whole, most do have their right. own territory. As a, how um, how big would a territory be? I think it depends on the prey base. And the, okay. enough studies have been done. You know, you get in southern New Mexico or west Texas where prey base isn't high, some of those toms may have a 50, 70-mile radius. They may cover oh, over right. a several-month you know, mm-hmm. period. Jeez. Here, if there's a high prey base, they're going to be a lot smaller. Right, uh, like the like the one where you found the dead lion that was just eight miles away. Which to a like to me, that sounds like good grief. That's a long way, but for a lion, that's not that far. Correct? It's not that far. Yeah. It's really not that far. You no. know, and again, just like the elk, especially when they know the shortcuts. Right, right. You know, and that's what's really fun. You, you know, that's something you guys ought to come out and do one day, and we'll trail and talk and actually video. I'd love to. A deal and talk about it. But they're really neat, just like you talk about knowing the shortcuts when those old toms are traveling. And they can actually breed those females year-round. But it seems like they do breed more there in February, March. Mm-hmm. But when they're traveling, they know how to hit those ridges where everything kind of comes together. Mm-hmm. They don't go down the worst and up the worst. They know how to get through the country right. without wasting a lot of energy. Yeah, because energy, energy to them is life sustaining. Yeah. To us, we just look at something and go, "Well, we'll just climb up here and see if those elk are up there." I'm, I'm always the type of guy. I look at a way like there's got to be an easier way to get up here. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I know one thing. If we have another mountain lion walk past us, we're calling Johnny. <laughs> I would. I would probably bet that we're the way that ranch is turning around and, and the things that are happening on that ranch that we hunt in New Mexico. From from what the owners are doing, and then from what the fire did, I would bet we see several more. Yeah, um, it's it's that ranch has has had some big cats killed off it in the past. Uh, I think one of the biggest in the state was come off that ranch at a, back in I think it was early 2000 when he killed that cat, and we made the made made the comment to them that we saw him, and you know they were like, okay, and and left it at that, which meant we're coming back to get him. He may not even be there. I don't no, know. I don't know. 
but the amount of sign that we saw was way more than I've ever seen, and we've been hunting that ranch since 2004. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because after we saw that cat, again, that was our first day when we were walking around hunting, we found deer kills. We found all kinds. You know, we were like, okay, he's been making his rounds. But uh, And yeah. you talk about territories and deer kills and terrain. You know, I've hunted a lot of these ranches for 20-something years, and you can take an adult tom out of that area and I guarantee you the very next year you will have a tom running the same cut, the same drainages. I mean, there's areas that you better go look for. And a lot of it, people go, you think that's just why they like to travel there? And I said, well, I think it's just the way those canyons all tie in together. They have literally certain areas that you better go check because if there's a line in the country, he's going to come through that saddle or that crossing just the way everything bottlenecks up in certain areas. Just because it makes the most sense yes. for them to travel that well, way. Well, for them, paying attention to te- detail to them is survival. For us, it's just we're trying to figure wildlife out, and, and we'll never be as keen. God didn't give us that like he gave it to them. Right. You know, we'll survive, we'll run to Walmart and get a pork chop, and we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So last question, and I know you're busy. So um, – us seeing that line walk past like that, that's got to, like, that doesn't happen very often, I'm assuming. Like, that had to, like, what, does that, have you ever seen a line just come walking through the woods? Does that happen too terribly often? Well, two o'clock in the day. Two o'clock in the day is not very often. Now, guys, I've hunted lines and elk hunted and spent hours, kind of like you guys, mm-hmm. in line country. And in probably 30 years of doing it, I've probably seen – 20 lines or less without yeah. dogs right now last year for the first time the line numbers throughout the western united states is on the increase mm-hmm. last year um west of town while we were elk hunting we saw three lines okay uh cameron haynes was with me we saw two two lines coming right down one of the gas roads out there wow uh two weeks later we saw another one laying under a tree about four o'clock in the morning and that was kind of interesting because I had a bull bugling and I hit a cow call to see if he would start coming. Well, he did start coming, but the same time I hit the cow call, the line got up, stretched, and it started coming. <laughs> so we were sitting here going, okay, which one's going to yeah. get up to us first, yeah. this line or the elk? <laughs> uh, and then last year, we were just west of town after dark, and uh, – Three lines came right across my ranger as I came off the ranch in the dark. So I saw six lines last year during wow. that season, which is unheard of. First time I've ever yeah. seen that many cats. Well, I uh, guess, I mean, if there's any kind of correlation, that would make sense why maybe why we saw the one we saw because where we saw it at, I mean, it's in Colorado, New Mexico, but it's right across the border. It's not far. Right. So maybe they're experiencing the same kind of increase too, and that's why we happen to see that guy just come walking through. Right. And that um, ranch doesn't have any, any pressure on it at all. Um, we elk hunt it uh, during the fall, and then from from elk season on, there's there's nothing till we show up in May, the last week, of, first week of May to go turkey hunting. And we're there the for last week. five days. And we're there for five days. So to see that line in the middle of the day like that, you know, you know he's not searching because there's there's an abundance of prey there for him. I just I don't know. You know more than me. Just to see one at two o'clock in the day like that, it was like, really. And to catch it on video like we did, that was just lucky. Yeah. Oh, it was Pure a neat luck. video yeah. when you sent it. And that was a very, very good cat. <laughs> you could just tell when he walked out, that was an, 
probably 150 pound tom just looking at the video so maybe better I mean, than that troy said they're like that looks like a big i said well, i know who to send it to right. you'll know <laughs> you know the biggest one we've ever weighed whole weighed 204 whole, that we brought out and actually got to weigh on certified scales mm. well, uh, i know that night you know we had pitch tents and everybody was talking about it jordan <laughs> slept in the back of the truck he wouldn't sleep in his tent right he's like i'm sleeping right. in the back of this truck troy jumped on my tent the next morning screaming like a mountain lion <laughs> I tried to come out of my tent very fast. Have you ever heard in your time being here of, of anybody having any close encounters with being attacked by a lion or anybody being attacked by one? You know, that we have had a few within the state through the years that have been attacked. Mm -hmm. um, I know one year we actually had a track runner up in Evergreen, Colorado that was killed by a lion. It was a young high school kid out running the track early morning. And, you know, a lion's no more different than a house cat, whether that cat was hungry or not. You know, when something goes running yeah. by one, they're going to possibly pounce. And, you know, the, yeah. had that one happen. We do get a lot of close encounters, you know, with people every year somewhere. You know, when you're living in lion and bear country or any kind of predator country, you've got that chance, you know, yeah. when you go out there of For one sure. possibly doing something. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we see probably more dogs you know, lines getting in yeah. the backyards and killing their house dogs or yeah. or something. That makes sense. But everything's got to be managed. You know, I I probably love and people probably can't see it. You know, I've seen for sure close to 500 cats now in my life. I still love walking to a tree or a rock and seeing the next one, and I don't kill them all. Yeah. You know, I like training my dogs. You got to keep everything in a check and a balance. And mm -hmm. a lot of the ranches I hunt. I've hunted them long enough now. I pretty well know how many I want to take just to keep a healthy deer elk population where yeah. you have the right fawn and calf survival. And, and you don't need to go out and just kill them all, yeah. you know. But you do need to keep everything in the right proper check to balance ratio. Right. Yeah, and common. I'm glad you brought that up because that is a common misconception. People either t tend to go to extremes. They don't want to kill any of them or they want to kill all That's of right. them. That's right. Well, think about it. How many how many deer hunters you know that would be riding down the road to see a deer stuck in the fence and go let the deer out of the fence? Yeah. If you're a killer, you can walk up to it, bop it in the head, and throw it in the truck. You would probably do the same thing for a cat if the cat would let you get next to it. <laughs> but, I mean, think about it. It's You help it out in so many different ways by letting them live but also keeping them in check. And you got to have those checks and balances for everything to, to work. You can't, we as humans can change the ecosystem if we're not careful. And to, to change it could be, could make truly drastic mistake in my, in my mind. God made it one way and he expects us to have dominion and keep over it the way we should. And, and if we don't, then you got a, a whole imbalance of a system that's just not, not working. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation for me. Thank you. I know, I know we we got to get on the road. You've got to get ready. You've got hunters coming in tomorrow to guide, right? From Mississippi. From Mississippi. you got to watch those people from Mississippi. I know. It. I know from my <laughs> firsthand experience. you got to watch those folks. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, folks, I hope you all have enjoyed this conversation as much as Troy and I have. Johnny, thank you for your time. And, uh, yeah, that will be it for today. Thank you all for listening to the Speak the Language podcast.